Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This recording by Zachary Brewster Geis. Greenbelt, Maryland, September 2006. The Man Who Was Thursday, A Nightmare, by G. K. Chesterton. To Edmund Clarehue Bentley. A cloud was on the mind of men, and wailing went the weather. Yea, a sick cloud upon the soul when we were boys together. Science announced non-entity, and art admired decay. The world was old and ended, but you and I were gay. Round us in antic order their crippled vices came, lust that had lost its laughter, fear that had lost its shame. Like the white lock of Whistler that lit our aimless gloom, men showed their own white feather as proudly as a plume. Life was a fly that faded and death a drone that stung. The world was very old indeed when you and I were young. They twisted even decent sin to shapes not to be named. Men were ashamed of honor, but we were not ashamed. Weak if we were and foolish, not thus we failed, not thus. When that black Baal blocked the heavens, he had no hymns from us. Children we were, our forts of sand were even as weak as Eve. High as they went we piled them up to break that bitter sea. Fools as we were in motley, all jangling and absurd, when all church bells were silent, our cap and beds were heard. Not all unhelped we held the fort, our tiny flags unfurled. Some giants labored in that cloud to lift it from the world. I find again the book we found, I feel the hour that flings far out of fish-shaped pomenock some cry of cleaner things. And the green carnation withered as in forest fires that pass, Roared in the wind of all the world ten million leaves of grass. Or sane and sweet and sudden as a bird sings in the rain, Truth out of Tusitala spoke, and pleasure out of pain. Yea, cool and clear and sudden as a bird sings in the grey, Dunedin to Samoa spoke, and darkness unto day. But we were young. We lived to see God break their bitter charms. God and the good republic come riding back in arms. We have seen the city of Mansoul, even as it rocked, relieved. Blessed are they who did not see, 
but being blind, believed. This is a tale of those old fears, even of those emptied hells, and none but you shall understand the true thing that it tells, of what colossal gods of shame could cow men and yet crash, of what huge devils hid the stars yet fell at a pistol flash. The doubts that were so plain to chase, so dreadful to withstand, oh, who shall understand but you? Yea, who shall understand? The doubts that drove us through the night as we two talked amain, and day had broken on the streets ere it broke upon the brain. Between us, by the peace of God, such truth can now be told. Yea, there is strength in striking root, and good in growing old. We have found common things at last, and marriage, and a creed. And I may safely write it now, and you may safely read. G. K. C. End of Dedication This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This recording by Zachary Brewstergeis. Greenbelt, Maryland, October 2006. The Man Who Was Thursday, A Nightmare, by G. K. Chesterton. Chapter 1. The Two Poets of Saffron Park. The suburb of Saffron Park lay on the sunset side of London, as red and ragged as a cloud of sunset. It was built of a bright brick throughout. Its skyline was fantastic, and even its ground plan was wild. It had been the outburst of a speculative builder, faintly tinged with art, who called its architecture sometimes Elizabethan and sometimes Queen Anne, apparently under the impression that the two sovereigns were identical. It was described with some justice as an artistic colony, though it never in any definable way produced any art. But although its pretensions to be an intellectual centre were a little vague, its pretensions to be a pleasant place were quite indisputable. The stranger who looked for the first time at the quaint red houses could only think how very oddly shaped the people must be who could fit into them. Nor when he met the people was he disappointed in this respect. The place was not only pleasant but perfect, if once he could regard it not as a deception but rather as a dream, even if the people were not artists. The whole was nevertheless artistic. That young man with the long auburn hair and the impudent face, that young man was not really a poet, but surely he was a poem. That old gentleman with the wild white beard and the wild white hat, that venerable humbug was not really a philosopher, but at least he was the cause of philosophy in others. That scientific gentleman with the bald egg-like head and the bare bird-like neck had no real right to the airs of science that he assumed. He had not discovered anything new in biology, but what biological creature could he have discovered more singular than himself? Thus and thus only the whole place had properly to be regarded. It had to be considered not so much as a workshop for artists, but as a frail but finished work of art. A man who stepped into its social atmosphere felt as if he had stepped into a written comedy. More especially this attractive unreality fell upon it about nightfall, 
when the extravagant roofs were dark against the afterglow and the whole insane village seemed as separate as a drifting cloud. This again was more strongly true of the many nights of local festivity, when the little gardens were often illuminated and the big Chinese lanterns glowed in the dwarfish trees like some fierce and monstrous fruit. And this was strongest of all on one particular evening, still vaguely remembered in the locality, of which the auburn-haired poet was the hero. It was not by any means the only evening of which he was the hero. On many nights those passing by his little back garden might hear his high didactic voice laying down the law to men and particularly to women. The attitude of women in such cases was indeed one of the paradoxes of the place. Most of the women were of the kind vaguely called emancipated and professed some protest against male supremacy. Yet these new women would always pay to a man the extravagant compliment which no ordinary woman ever pays to him, that of listening while he is talking. And Mr. Lucian Gregory, the red-haired poet, was really, in some sense, a man worth listening to even if one only laughed at the end of it. He put the old cant of the lawlessness of art in the art of lawlessness with a certain impudent freshness which gave at least a momentary pleasure. He was helped in some degree by the arresting oddity of his appearance, which he worked, as the phrase goes, for all it was worth. His dark red hair, parted in the middle, was literally like a woman's, and curved into the slow curls of a virgin in a pre-Raphaelite picture. From within this almost saintly oval, however, his face projected suddenly broad and brutal, the chin carried forward with a look of cockney contempt. This combination at once tickled and terrified the nerves of a neurotic population. He seemed like a walking blasphemy, a blend of the angel and the ape. This particular evening, if it is remembered for nothing else, will be remembered in that place for its strange sunset. It looked like the end of the world. All the heavens seemed covered with a quite vivid and palpable plumage. You could only say that the sky was full of feathers and of feathers that almost brushed the face. Across the great part of the dome they were grey, with the strangest tints of violet and mauve and an unnatural pink or pale green. But towards the west the whole grew past description, transparent and passionate, and the last red-hot plumes of it covered up the sun like something too good to be seen. The whole was so close about the earth as to express nothing but a violent secrecy. The very Empyrean seemed to be a secret. It expressed that splendid smallness which is the soul of local patriotism. The very sky seemed small. I say that there are some inhabitants who may remember the evening if only by that oppressive sky. There are others who may remember it because it marked the first appearance in the place of the second poet of Saffron Park. For a long time the red-haired revolutionary had reigned without a rival. It was upon the night of the sunset that his solitude suddenly ended. The new poet, who introduced himself by the name of Gabriel Syme, was a very mild-looking mortal, with a fair pointed beard and faint yellow hair. But an impression grew that he was less meek than he looked. He signalized his entrance by differing with the established poet, Gregory, upon the whole nature of poetry. He said that he, Syme, was a poet of law, a poet of order. Nay, he said he was a poet of respectability. 
So all the Saffron Parkers looked at him as if he had that moment fallen out of that impossible sky. In fact, Mr. Lucian Gregory, the anarchic poet, connected the two events. "'It may well be,' he said, in his sudden lyrical manner, "'it may well be, on such a night of clouds and cruel colours, that there is brought forth upon the earth such a portent as a respectable poet. You say you are a poet of law. I say you are a contradiction in terms. I only wonder there were not comets and earthquakes on the night you appeared in this garden.' The man with the meek blue eyes and the pale, pointed beard endured these thunders with a certain submissive solemnity. The third party of the group, Gregory's sister Rosamond, who had her brother's braids of red hair but a kindlier face underneath them, laughed with such mixture of admiration and disapproval as she gave commonly to the family oracle. Gregory resumed in high oratorical good humour. "'An artist is identical with an anarchist,' he cried. You might transpose the words anywhere. An anarchist is an artist. The man who throws a bomb is an artist, because he prefers a great movement to everything. He sees how much more valuable is one burst of blazing light, one peal of perfect thunder, than the mere common bodies of a few shapeless policemen. An artist disregards all governments, abolishes all conventions. The poet delights in disorder only. If it were not so, the most poetical thing in the world would be the Underground Railway." "'So it is,' said Mr. Syme. "'Nonsense!' said Gregory, who was very rational when anyone else attempted paradox. "'Why do all the clerks and navvies in the railway trains look so sad and tired, so very sad and tired? I will tell you, it is because they know the train is going right. It is because they know that whatever place they have taken a ticket for, that place they will reach. It is because after they have passed Sloane Square they know that the next station must be Victoria, and nothing but Victoria.' Oh, their wild rapture! Oh, their eyes like stars and their souls again in Eden, if the next station were unaccountably Baker Street. It is you who are unpoetical, replied the poet Syme. If what you say of Clarks is true, they can only be as prosaic as your poetry. The rare strange thing is to hit the mark. The gross obvious thing is to miss it. We feel it is epical when man with one wild arrow strikes a distant bird. Is it not also epical? when man with one wild engine strikes a distant station. Chaos is dull, because in chaos the train might indeed go anywhere, to Baker Street or to Baghdad. But man is a magician, and his whole magic is in this, that he does say Victoria, and lo, it is Victoria. No, take your books of mere poetry and prose, let me read a timetable with tears of pride. Take your Byron, who commemorates the defeats of man, Give me Bradshaw, who commemorates his victories. Give me Bradshaw, I say! Must you go? inquired Gregory sarcastically. I tell you, went on Syme with passion, that every time a train comes in I feel that it has broken past batteries of besiegers, and that man has won a battle against chaos. You say contemptuously that when one has left Sloane Square one must come to Victoria. I say that one might do a thousand things instead, and that whenever I really come there I have the sense of hair-breadth escape, and when I hear the guard shout out the word Victoria, it is not an unmeaning word. It is to me the cry of a herald announcing conquest. It is to me indeed Victoria. It is the victory of Adam. Gregory wagged his heavy red head with a slow and sad smile. 
"'And even then,' he said, "'we pellets always ask the question, "'and what is Victoria now that you have got there? "'You think Victoria is like the new Jerusalem. "'We know that the new Jerusalem will only be like Victoria. "'Yes, the poet will be discontented even in the streets of heaven. "'The poet is always in revolt.' "'There again,' said Syme irritably, "'what is there poetical about being in revolt?' You might as well say that it is poetical to be seasick. Being sick is a revolt. Both being sick and being rebellious may be the wholesome thing on certain desperate occasion, but I'm hanged if I can see why they are poetical. Revolt in the abstract is revolting. It's mere vomiting. The girl winced for a flash at the unpleasant word, but Syme was too hot to heed her. It is things going right, he cried, that is poetical. Our digestions, for instance, going sacredly and silently right, that is the foundation of all poetry. Yes, the most poetical thing, more poetical than the flowers, more poetical than the stars, the most poetical thing in the world, is not being sick. Really, said Gregory superciliously, the examples you choose— I beg your pardon, said Syme grimly, I forgot we had abolished all conventions. For the first time a red patch appeared on Gregory's forehead. "'You don't expect me,' he said, "'to revolutionize society on this lawn.' Syme looked straight into his eyes and smiled sweetly. "'No, I don't,' he said. "'But I suppose that if you were serious about your anarchism, that is exactly what you would do.' Gregory's big bull's eyes blinked suddenly like those of an angry lion, and one could almost fancy that his red mane rose. "'Don't you think, then,' he said in a dangerous voice, "'that I am serious about my anarchism?' "'I beg your pardon,' said Syme. "'Am I not serious about my anarchism?' cried Gregory, with knotted fists. "'My dear fellow,' said Syme, and strolled away. With surprise, but with a curious pleasure, he found Rosamond Gregory still in his company. "'Mr. Syme,' she said, "'do the people who talk like you and my brother often mean what they say? Do you mean what you say now?' Syme smiled. "'Do you?' he asked. "'What do you mean?' asked the girl, with grave eyes. "'My dear Miss Gregory,' said Syme gently, "'there are many kinds of sincerity and insincerity.' When you say thank you for the salt, do you mean what you say? No. When you say the world is round, do you mean what you say? No. It is true, but you don't mean it. Now, sometimes a man like your brother really finds the thing he does mean. It may be only a half-truth, quarter-truth, tenth-truth, but then he says more than he means from sheer force of meaning it. She was looking at him from under level brows. Her face was grave and open and there had fallen upon it the shadow of that unreasoning responsibility which is at the bottom of the most frivolous woman, the maternal watch, which is as old as the world. "'Is he really an anarchist, then?' she asked. "'Only in that sense that I speak of,' replied Syme, "'or, if you prefer it, in that nonsense.' She drew her broad brows together and said abruptly, "'He wouldn't really use bombs or that sort of thing?' Syme broke into a great laugh that seemed too large for his slight and somewhat dandified figure. "'Good Lord, no!' he said. "'That has to be done anonymously.' 
and at that the corners of her own mouth broke into a smile, and she thought with a simultaneous pleasure of Gregory's absurdity and of his safety. Syme strolled with her to a seat in the corner of the garden, and continued to pour out his opinions. For he was a sincere man, and in spite of his superficial airs and graces, at root a humble one. And it is always the humble man who talks too much. The proud man watches himself too closely. He defended respectability with violence and exaggeration. He grew passionate in his praise of tidiness and propriety. All the time there was a smell of lilac all round him. Once he heard very faintly in some distant street a barrel organ begin to play, and it seemed to him that his heroic words were moving to a tiny tune from under or beyond the world. He stared and talked at the girl's red hair and amused face for what seemed to be a few minutes, and then, feeling that the groups in such a place should mix, rose to his feet. To his astonishment, he discovered the whole garden empty. Everyone had gone long ago, and he went himself with a rather hurried apology. He left with a sense of champagne in his head, which he could not afterwards explain. In the wild events which were to follow, this girl had no part at all. He never saw her again until all his tale was over. And yet, in some indescribable way, she kept recurring like a motive in music through all his mad adventures afterwards, and the glory of her strange hair ran like a red thread through those dark and ill-drawn tapestries of the night. For what followed was so improbable that it might well have been a dream. When Syme went out into the starlit street, he found it for the moment empty. Then he realized, in some odd way, that the silence was rather a living silence than a dead one. Directly outside the door stood a street lamp, whose gleam gilded the leaves of the tree that bent out over the fence behind him. About a foot from the lamp-post stood a figure almost as rigid and motionless as the lamp-post itself. The tall hat and long frock-coat were black, the face, in an abrupt shadow, was almost as dark. Only a fringe of fiery hair against the light, and also something aggressive in the attitude, proclaimed that it was the poet Gregory. He had something of the look of a masked bravo waiting sword in hand for his foe. He made a sort of doubtful salute, which Syme somewhat more formally returned. "'I was waiting for you,' said Gregory. "'Might I have a moment's conversation?' "'Certainly. About what?' asked Syme in a sort of weak wonder. Gregory struck out with his stick at the lamp-post and then at the tree. "'About this and this,' he cried, "'about order and anarchy. There is your precious order, that lean iron lamp, ugly and barren, and there is anarchy. Rich, living, reproducing itself, there is anarchy, splendid in green and gold.' "'All the same,' replied Syme patiently. "'Just at present,' You only see the tree by the light of the lamp. I wonder when you would ever see the lamp by the light of the tree. Then after a pause he said, But may I ask if you have been standing out here in the dark, only to resume our little argument? No, cried out Gregory in a voice that rang down the street. I did not stand here to resume our argument, but to end it forever. The silence fell again, and Syme, though he understood nothing, listened instinctively for something serious. Gregory began in a smooth voice and with a rather bewildering smile. "'Mr. Syme,' he said, "'this evening you succeeded in doing something rather remarkable.' 
you did something to me that no man born of woman has ever succeeded in doing before indeed now i remember resumed gregory reflectively one other person succeeded in doing it the captain of a penny steamer if i remember correctly at south end you have irritated me i am very sorry replied syme with gravity i am afraid my fury and your insult are too shocking to be wiped out even with an apology said gregory very calmly no duel could wipe it out if i struck you dead i could not wipe it out there is only one way by which that insult can be erased and that way i choose i am going at the possible sacrifice of my life and honour to prove to you that you were wrong in what you said in what i said you said i was not serious about being an anarchist there are degrees of seriousness replied syme i have never doubted that you were perfectly sincere in this sense that you thought what you said well worth saying that you thought a paradox might wake men up to a neglected truth gregory stared at him steadily and painfully and in no other sense he asked you think me serious you think me a flaneur who lets fall occasional truths you do not think that in a deeper more deadly sense i am serious syme struck his stick violently on the stones of the road serious he cried good lord is this street serious are those damned chinese lanterns serious is the whole caboodle serious one comes here and talks a pack of bosh and perhaps some sense as well but i should think very little of a man who didn't keep something in the background of his life that was more serious than all this talking something more serious whether it was religion or only drink very well said gregory his face darkening you shall see something more serious than either drink or religion Symes stood waiting with his usual air of mildness until gregory again opened his lips you spoke just now of having a religion is it really true that you have one oh said syme with a beaming smile we are all catholics now then may i ask you to swear by whatever gods or saints your religion involves that you will not reveal what i am now going to tell you to any son of adam and especially not to the police will you swear that if you will take upon yourself this awful abnegations if you will consent to burden your soul with a vow that you should never make and a knowledge you should never dream about i will promise you in return you will promise me in return inquired syme as the other paused i will promise you a very entertaining evening syme suddenly took off his hat your offer he said is far too idiotic to be declined you say that poet is always an anarchist i disagree but i hope at least that he is always a sportsman permit me here and now to swear as a christian and promise as a good comrade and a fellow artist that i will not report anything of this whatever it is to the police and now in the name of colney hatch what is it i think said gregory with placid irrelevancy that we will call a cab he gave two long whistles and a hansom came rattling down the road the two got into it in silence 
Gregory gave through the trap the address of an obscure public-house on the Chiswick bank of the river. The cab whisked itself away again, and in it these two fantastics quitted their fantastic town. End of chapter 1「This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This recording by Zachary Brewstergeis. Greenbelt, Maryland, October 2006. The Man Who Was Thursday, A Nightmare, by G. K. Chesterton. Chapter 2 the secret of gabriel syme the cab pulled up before a particularly dreary and greasy beer-shop into which gregory rapidly conducted his companion they seated themselves in a close and dim sort of bar-parlour at a stained wooden table with one wooden leg the room was so small and dark that very little could be seen of the attendant who was summoned beyond a vague and dark impression of something bulky and bearded will you take a little supper asked Gregory politely. The pâté de foie gras is not good here, but I can recommend the game. Syme received the remark with stolidity, imagining it to be a joke. Accepting the vein of humour, he said with a well-bred indifference, "'Oh, bring me some lobster mayonnaise.' To his indescribable astonishment, the man only said, "'Certainly, sir,' and went away apparently to get it. "'What will you drink?' resumed Gregory, with the same careless yet apologetic air. I shall only have a crepe de menthe myself, I've dined, but the champagne can really be trusted. Do let me start you with a half-bottle of pommery, at least. Thank you, said the motionless Syme. You are very good. His further attempts at conversation, somewhat disorganized in themselves, were cut short finally as by a thunderbolt, by the actual appearance of the lobster. Syme tasted it, and found it particularly good. Then he suddenly began to eat with great rapidity and appetite. "'Excuse me if I enjoy myself rather obviously,' he said to Gregory, smiling. "'I don't often have the luck to have a dream like this. It is new to me for a nightmare to lead to a lobster. It is commonly the other way.' "'You are not asleep, I assure you,' said Gregory. "'You are, on the contrary, close to the most actual and rousing moment of your existence. Ah!' here comes your champagne. I admit there may be a slight disproportion, let us say, between the inner arrangements of this excellent hotel and its simple and unpretentious exterior. But that is all our modesty. We are the most modest men that ever lived on earth. And who are we? asked Syme, emptying his champagne glass. It is quite simple, replied Gregory. We are the serious anarchists in whom you do not believe." "'Oh,' said Syme shortly, "'you do yourselves well in drinks.' "'Yes, we are serious about everything,' answered Gregory. Then after a pause he added, "'If in a few moments this table begins to turn round a little, don't put it down to your inroads into the champagne. I don't wish you to do yourself an injustice.' "'Well, if I am not drunk, I am mad,' replied Syme with perfect calm. "'But I trust I can behave like a gentleman in either condition. May I smoke?' "'Certainly,' said Gregory, producing a cigar-case. "'Try one of mine.' Syme took the cigar, clipped the end off with a cigar-cutter out of his waistcoat pocket, 
put it in his mouth, lit it slowly, and let out a long cloud of smoke. It is not a little to his credit that he performed these rites with so much composure, for almost before he had begun them the table at which he sat had begun to revolve, first slowly, and then rapidly, as if at an insane séance. "'You must not mind it,' said Gregory. "'It's a kind of screw.' "'Quite so,' said Syme placidly. "'A kind of screw. How simple that is!' The next moment the smoke of his cigar, which had been wavering across the room in snaky twists, went straight up as if from a factory chimney, and the two, with their chairs and table, shot down through the floor as if the earth had swallowed them. They went rattling down a kind of roaring chimney as rapidly as a lift cut loose, and they came with an abrupt bump to the bottom. But when Gregory threw open a pair of doors and let in a red subterranean light, Syme was still smoking with one leg thrown over the other, and had not turned a yellow hair. Gregory let him down a low vaulted passage, at the end of which was the red light. It was an enormous crimson lantern, nearly as big as a fireplace, fixed over a small but heavy iron door. In the door there was a sort of hatchway or grating, and on this Gregory struck five times. A heavy voice with a foreign accent asked him who he was. To this he gave the more or less unexpected reply, Mr. Joseph Chamberlain. The heavy hinges began to move. It was obviously some kind of password. Inside the doorway the passage gleamed as if it were lined with a network of steel. On a second glance Syme saw that the glittering pattern was really made up of ranks and ranks of rifles and revolvers, closely packed or interlocked. "'I must ask you to forgive me all these formalities,' said Gregory. "'We have to be very strict here.' "'Oh, don't apologize," said Syme. "'I know your passion for law and order.' and he stepped into the passage lined with the steel weapons. With his long fair hair and rather foppish frock coat, he looked a singularly frail and fanciful figure as he walked down that shining avenue of death. They passed through several such passages, and came out at last into a queer steel chamber with curved walls, almost spherical in shape, but presenting, with its tiers of benches, something of the appearance of a scientific lecture theatre. There were no rifles or pistols in this apartment, but round the walls of it were hung more dubious and dreadful shapes, things that looked like the bulbs of iron plants or the eggs of iron birds. They were bombs, and the very room itself seemed like the inside of a bomb. Syme knocked his cigar-ash off against the wall and went in. "'And now, my dear Mr. Syme,' said Gregory, throwing himself in an expansive manner on the bench under the largest bomb, "'now we are quite cosy so let us talk properly. Now no human words can give you any notion of why I brought you here. It was one of those quite arbitrary emotions, like jumping off a cliff or falling in love. Suffice it to say that you were an inexpressibly irritating fellow, and to do you justice you are still. I would break twenty oaths of secrecy for the pleasure of taking you down a peg. That way you have of lighting a cigar would make a priest break the seal of confession— "'Well, you said that you were quite certain I was not a serious anarchist. "'Does this place strike you as being serious?' "'It does seem to have a moral under all its gaiety,' assented Syme. "'But may I ask you two questions? "'You need not fear to give me information, "'because, as you remember, you very wisely extorted from me a promise "'not to tell the police, a promise I shall certainly keep. "'So it is in mere curiosity that I make my queries.' 
First of all, what is it really all about? What is it you object to? You want to abolish government? To abolish God, said Gregory, opening the eyes of a fanatic. We do not only want to upset a few despotisms and police regulations. That sort of anarchism does exist, but it is a mere branch of the nonconformists. We dig deeper and we blow you higher. We wish to deny all those arbitrary distinctions of vice and virtue, honour and treachery, upon which mere rebels base themselves. The silly sentimentalists of the French Revolution talked of the rights of man. We hate rights as we hate wrongs. We have abolished right and wrong. "'And right and left,' said Syme with a simple eagerness. "'I hope you will abolish them, too. They are much more troublesome to me.' "'You spoke of a second question,' snapped Gregory. "'With pleasure,' resumed Syme. "'In all your present acts and surroundings there is a scientific attempt at secrecy. I have an aunt who lived over a shop, but this is the first time I have found people living from preference under a public house. You have a heavy iron door. You cannot pass it without submitting to the humiliation of calling yourself Mr. Chamberlain. You surround yourself with steel instruments, which make the place, if I may say so, more impressive than homelike. May I ask why, after taking all this trouble to barricade yourselves in the bowels of the earth, you then parade your whole secret by talking about anarchism to every silly woman in Saffron Park? Gregory smiled. The answer is simple, he said. I told you I was a serious anarchist, and you did not believe me. Nor do they believe me. Unless I took them into this infernal room, they would not believe me. Syme smoked thoughtfully and looked at him with interest. Gregory went on. "'The history of the thing might amuse you,' he said. "'When I first became one of the new anarchists, I tried all kinds of respectable disguises. I dressed up as a bishop. I read up all about bishops in our anarchist pamphlets and Superstition the Vampire and Priests of Prey. I certainly understood from them that bishops are strange and terrible old men, keeping a cruel secret from mankind.' I was misinformed. When on my first appearing in Episcopal Gators in a drawing-room I cried out in a voice of thunder, "'Down, down, presumptuous human reason!' They found out in some way that I was not a bishop at all. I was nabbed at once. Then I made up as a millionaire. But I defended capital with so much intelligence that a fool could see that I was quite poor. Then I tried being a major. Now I am a humanitarian myself. But I have, I hope, enough intellectual breadth to understand the position of those who, like Nietzsche, admire violence, the proud mad war of nature and all that, you know. I threw myself into the major. I drew my sword and waved it constantly. I called out blood abstractedly, like a man calling for wine. I often said, let the weak perish. It is the law. Well, well, it seems majors don't do this. I was nabbed again. At last I went in despair to the president of the Central Anarchist Council, who is the greatest man in Europe. "'What is his name?' asked Syme. "'You would not know it,' answered Gregory. "'That is his greatness. Caesar and Napoleon put all their genius into being heard of, and they were heard of. He puts all his genius into not being heard of, and he is not heard of. But you cannot be for five minutes in the room with him without feeling that Caesar and Napoleon would have been children in his hands. He was silent and even pale for a moment, and then resumed, But whenever he gives advice it is always something as startling as an epigram, and yet as practical as the Bank of England. 
I said to him, What disguise will hide me from the world? What can I find more respectable than bishops and majors? He looked at me with his large but indecipherable face. You want a safe disguise, do you? You want a dress which will guarantee you harmless, a dress in which no one would ever look for a bomb? I nodded. He suddenly lifted his lion's voice. "'Why, then dress up as an anarchist, you fool!' he roared, so that the room shook. "'Nobody will ever expect you to do anything dangerous then!' And he turned his broad back on me without another word. I took his advice, and I have never regretted it. I preached blood and murder to those women day and night, and by God they would let me wheel their perambulators!' Syme sat watching him with some respect in his large blue eyes. "'You took me in,' he said. It really is a smart dodge. Then, after a pause, he added, What do you call this tremendous president of yours? We generally call him Sunday, replied Gregory with simplicity. You see, there are seven members of the Central Anarchist Council, and they are named after days of the week. He is called Sunday by some of his admirers, Bloody Sunday. It is curious you should mention the matter, because the very night you have dropped in, if I may so express it, is the night on which our London branch, which assembles in this room, has to elect its own deputy to fill a vacancy in the council. The gentleman who has for some time past played with propriety and general applause, the difficult part of Thursday, has died quite suddenly. Consequently, we have called a meeting this very evening to elect a successor. He got to his feet and strolled across the room with a sort of smiling embarrassment. "'I feel somehow as if you were my mother, Syme,' he continued casually. "'I feel that I can confide anything to you, as you have promised to tell nobody. In fact, I will confide to you something that I would not say in so many words to the anarchist who will be coming to this room in about ten minutes. We shall, of course, go through a form of election, but I don't mind telling you that it is practically certain what the result will be.' He looked down for a moment modestly. It is almost a settled thing that I am to be Thursday. "'My dear fellow,' said Syme heartily, "'I congratulate you. A great career!' Gregory smiled in deprecation, and walked across the room, talking rapidly. "'As a matter of fact, everything is ready for me on this table,' he said, "'and the ceremony will probably be the shortest possible.' Syme also strolled across to the table, and found lying across it a walking-stick, which turned out on examination to be a sword-stick, a large Colt's revolver, a sandwich-case, and a formidable flask of brandy. Over the chair, beside the table, was thrown a heavy-looking cape or cloak. "'I have only to get the form of election finished,' continued Gregory with animation. "'Then I snatch up this cloak and stick, stuff these other things into my pocket, step out of a door in this cavern, which opens on the river, where there is a steam-tug already waiting for me, and then—then—' Oh, the wild joy of being Thursday! And he clasped his hands. Syme, who had sat down once more with his usual insolent languor, got to his feet with an unusual air of hesitation. Why is it, he asked vaguely, that I think you are quite a decent fellow? Why do I positively like you, Gregory? He paused a moment and then added with a sort of fresh curiosity, is it because you are such an ass? There was a thoughtful silence again, and then he cried out, Well, damn it all! 
This is the funniest situation I have ever been in in my life, and I am going to act accordingly. Gregory, I gave you a promise before I came into this place. That promise I would keep under red-hot pincers. Would you give me, for my own safety, a little promise of the same kind? A promise? asked Gregory, wondering. Yes, said Syme very seriously. A promise. I swore before God that I would not tell your secret to the police. Will you swear by humanity or whatever beastly thing you believe in that you will not tell my secret to the anarchists? Your secret? asked the staring Gregory. Have you got a secret? Yes, said Syme. I have a secret. Then after a pause, will you swear? Gregory glared at him gravely for a few moments, then said abruptly, "'You must have bewitched me, but I feel a furious curiosity about you. Yes, I will swear not to tell the anarchists anything you tell me, but look sharp, for they will be here in a couple of minutes.' Syme rose slowly to his feet and thrust his long white hands into his long grey trousers' pockets. Almost as he did so, there came five knocks on the outer grating, proclaiming the arrival of the first of the conspirators. "'Well,' said Syme slowly, "'I don't know how to tell you the truth more shortly than by saying that your expedient of dressing up as an aimless poet is not confined to you or your president. We have known the dodge for some time at Scotland Yard.' Gregory tried to spring up straight, but he swayed thrice. "'What did you say?' he asked in an inhuman voice. "'Yes,' said Syme simply. "'I am a police detective. "'But I think I hear your friends coming.' "'From the doorway there came a murmur of, "'Mr. Joseph Chamberlain. "'It was repeated twice and thrice and then thirty times, "'and the crowd of Joseph Chamberlains, a solemn thought, "'could be heard trampling down the corridor.'" End of chapter 2This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This recording by Zachary Brewstergeis. Greenbelt, Maryland, October 2006. The Man Who Was Thursday, A Nightmare, by G. K. Chesterton. Chapter 3. The Man Who Was Thursday. Before one of the fresh faces could appear at the doorway, Gregory's stunned surprise had fallen from him. He was beside the table with a bound and a noise in his throat like a wild beast. He caught up the Colt's revolver and took aim at Syme. Syme did not flinch, but he put up a pale and polite hand. "'Don't be such a silly man,' he said, with the effeminate dignity of a curate. "'Don't you see it's not necessary?' "'Don't you see that we're both in the same boat?' "'Yes, and jolly seasick.' Gregory could not speak, but he could not fire either, and he looked his question. "'Don't you see we've checkmated each other?' cried Syme. "'I can't tell the police you are an anarchist. You can't tell the anarchists I'm a policeman. I can only watch you, knowing what you are. You can only watch me, knowing what I am. In short, it's a lonely intellectual duel, my head against yours. I'm a policeman deprived of the help of the police. 
you, my poor fellow, are an anarchist deprived of the help of that law and organization which is so essential to anarchy. The one solitary difference is in your favor. You are not surrounded by inquisitive policemen. I am surrounded by inquisitive anarchists. I cannot betray you, but I might betray myself. Come, come, wait and see me betray myself. I shall do it so nicely. Gregory put the pistol slowly down, still staring at Syme as if he were a sea monster. "'I don't believe in immortality,' he said at last. "'But if, after all this, you were to break your word, God would make a hell only for you to howl in forever.' "'I shall not break my word,' said Syme sternly. "'Nor will you break yours. Here are your friends.' The mass of the anarchists entered the room heavily, with a slouching and somewhat weary gait, but one little man with a black beard and glasses, a man somewhat of the type of Mr. Tim Healy, detached himself and bustled forward with some papers in his hand. "'Comrade Gregory,' he said, "'I suppose this man is a delegate.' Gregory, taken by surprise, looked down and muttered the name of Syme, but Syme replied almost pertly, I am glad to see that your gate is well enough guarded to make it hard for anyone to be here who was not a delegate. The brow of the little man with the black beard was, however, still contracted with something like suspicion. "'What branch do you represent?' he asked sharply. "'I should hardly call it a branch,' said Syme, laughing. "'I should call it, at the very least, a root. What do you mean?' "'The fact is,' said Syme serenely, the truth is, I am a Sabbatarian. I have been specially sent here to see that you show a due observance of Sunday. The little man dropped one of his papers, and a flicker of fear went over all the faces of the group. Evidently the awful president, whose name was Sunday, did sometimes send down such irregular ambassadors to such branch meetings. "'Well, comrade,' said the man with the papers after a pause, I suppose we'd better give you a seat in the meeting. If you ask my advice as a friend, said Syme with severe benevolence, I think you'd better. When Gregory heard the dangerous dialogue end with a sudden safety for his rival, he rose abruptly and paced the floor in painful thought. He was indeed in an agony of diplomacy. It was clear that Syme's inspired impudence was likely to bring him out of all merely accidental dilemmas. Little was to be hoped from them. He could not himself betray Syme, partly from honour, but partly also because if he betrayed him, and for some reason failed to destroy him, the Syme who escaped would be a Syme freed from all obligation of secrecy, a Syme who would simply walk to the nearest police station. After all, it was only one night's discussion, and only one detective who would know of it. He would let out as little as possible of their plans that night, and then let Syme go and chance it. He strode across to the group of anarchists, which was already distributing itself along the benches. "'I think it is time we began,' he said. "'The steam tug is waiting on the river already. I move that Comrade Buttons takes the chair.' This being approved by a show of hands, the little man with the papers slipped into the presidential seat. "'Comrades,' he began, as sharp as a pistol-shot, "'our meeting to-night is important, though it need not be long.' This branch has always had the honour of electing Thursdays for the Central European Council. We have elected many and splendid Thursdays. We all lament the sad decease of the heroic worker who occupied the post until last week. 
As you know, his services to the cause were considerable. He organized the great dynamite coup of Brighton, which, under happier circumstances, ought to have killed everybody on the pier. As you also know, his death was as self-denying as his life, for he died through his faith in a hygienic mixture of chalk and water as a substitute for milk, which beverage he regarded as barbaric and as involving cruelty to the cow. Cruelty, or anything approaching to cruelty, revolted him always. But it is not to acclaim his virtues that we are met, but for a harder task. It is difficult properly to praise his qualities, but it is more difficult to replace them. Upon you, comrades, it devolves this evening to choose out of the company present the man who shall be Thursday. If any comrade suggests a name, I will put it to the vote. If no comrade suggests a name, I can only tell myself that that dear dynamiter who has gone from us has carried into the unknowable abysses the last secret of his virtue and his innocence. There was a stir of almost inaudible applause, such as is sometimes heard in church. Then a large old man with a long and venerable white beard, perhaps the only real working man present, rose lumberingly and said, I move that Comrade Gregory be elected Thursday, and sat lumberingly down again. Does anyone second? asked the chairman. A little man with a velvet coat and pointed beard seconded. Before I put the matter to the vote, said the chairman, I will call on Comrade Gregory to make a statement. Gregory rose amid a great rumble of applause. His face was deadly pale, so that by contrast his queer red hair looked almost scarlet. But he was smiling and altogether at ease. He had made up his mind, and he saw his best policy quite plain in front of him like a white road. His best chance was to make a softened and ambiguous speech, such as would leave on the detective's mind the impression that the anarchist brotherhood was a very mild affair after all. He believed in his own literary power, his capacity for suggesting fine shades and picking perfect words. He thought that with care he could succeed, in spite of all the people around him, in conveying an impression of the institution subtly and delicately false. Syme had once thought that anarchists under all their bravado were only playing the fool. Could he not now, in the hour of peril, make Syme think so again? Comrades, began Gregory in a low but penetrating voice, it is not necessary for me to tell you what is my policy, for it is your policy also. Our belief has been slandered, it has been disfigured, it has been utterly confused and concealed, but it has never been altered. Those who talk about anarchism and its dangers go everywhere and anywhere to get their information, except to us, except to the fountainhead. They learn about anarchists from sixpenny novels. They learn about anarchists from tradesmen's newspapers. They learn about anarchists from Ali Sloper's half-holiday and the Sporting Times. They never learn about anarchists from anarchists. We have no chance of denying the mountainous slanders which are heaped upon our heads from one end of Europe to another. The man who has always heard that we are walking plagues has never heard our reply. I know that he will not hear it to-night, though my passion were to rend the roof, for it is deep, deep under the earth that the persecuted are permitted to assemble, as the Christians assembled in the catacombs. But if, by some incredible accident, there were here to-night a man who all his life had thus immensely misunderstood us, I would put this question to him. When those Christians met in those catacombs, 
What sort of moral reputation had they in the streets above? What tales were told of their atrocities by one educated Roman to another? Suppose, I would say to him, suppose that we are only repeating that still mysterious paradox of history. Suppose we seem as shocking as the Christians, because we are really as harmless as the Christians. Suppose we seem as mad as the Christians, because we are really as meek. The applause that had greeted the opening sentences had been gradually growing fainter, and at the last word it stopped suddenly. In the abrupt silence the man with the velvet jacket said in a high, squeaky voice, "'I'm not meek!' "'Comrade Witherspoon tells us,' resumed Gregory, "'that he is not meek. Ah, how little he knows himself! His words are indeed extravagant, his appearance is ferocious and even, to an ordinary taste, unattractive.' but only the eye of a friendship as deep and delicate as mine can perceive the deep foundation of solid meekness which lies at the base of him too deep even for himself to see. I repeat, we are the true early Christians, only that we come too late. We are simple as they revere simple, look at Comrade Witherspoon. We are modest as they were modest, look at me. We are merciful. No, no, called out Mr. Witherspoon with the velvet jacket. "'I say we are merciful,' repeated Gregory furiously, "'as the early Christians were merciful. "'Yet this did not prevent their being accused of eating human flesh. "'We do not eat human flesh.' "'Shame!' cried Witherspoon. "'Why not?' "'Comrade Witherspoon,' said Gregory, with a feverish gaiety, "'is anxious to know why nobody eats him.' "'Laughter. "'In our society, at any rate, which loves him sincerely, "'which is founded upon love.' "'No, no!' said Witherspoon. Down with love! Which is founded upon love, repeated Gregory, grinding his teeth. There will be no difficulty about the aims which we shall pursue as a body, or which I should pursue, were I chosen as the representative of that body. Superbly careless of the slanders that represent us as assassins and enemies of human society, we shall pursue with moral courage and quiet intellectual pressure the permanent ideals of brotherhood and simplicity." Gregory resumed his seat and passed his hand across his forehead. The silence was sudden and awkward, but the chairman rose like an automaton and said in a colorless voice, "'Does anyone oppose the election of Comrade Gregory?' The assembly seemed vague and subconsciously disappointed, and Comrade Witherspoon moved restlessly on his seat and muttered in his thick beard, by the sheer rush of routine, however, the motion would have been put and carried, but as the chairman was opening his mouth to put it, Syme sprang to his feet and said in a small and quiet voice, "'Yes, Mr. Chairman, I oppose.'" The most effective fact in oratory is an unexpected change in the voice. Mr. Gabriel Syme evidently understood oratory. Having said these first formal words in a moderated tone and with a brief simplicity, he made his next word ring and volley in the vault as if one of the guns had gone off. "'Comrades!' he cried in a voice that made every man jump out of his boots. "'Have we come here for this? Do we live underground like rats in order to listen to talk like this? This is talk we might listen to while eating buns at a Sunday school treat!' 
do we line these walls with weapons and bar that door with death lest any one should come and hear comrade gregory saying to us be good and you will be happy honesty is the best policy and virtue is its own reward there was not a word in comrade gregory's address to which a curate could not have listened with pleasure hear hear but i am not a curate loud cheers and i did not listen to it with pleasure renewed cheers the man who is fitted to make a good curate is not fitted to make a resolute forcible and efficient thursday hear hear comrade gregory has told us in only too apologetic a tone that we are not the enemies of society but i say that we are the enemies of society and so much the worse for society we are the enemies of society for society is the enemy of humanity its oldest and its most pitiless enemy hear hear comrade gregory has told us apologetically again that we are not murderers there i agree we are not murderers we are executioners cheers ever since syme had risen gregory had sat staring at him his face idiotic with astonishment now in the pause his lips of clay parted and he said with an automatic and lifeless distinctness you damnable hypocrite syme looked straight into those frightful eyes with his own pale blue ones and said with dignity comrade gregory accuses me of hypocrisy he knows as well as i do that i am keeping all my engagements and doing nothing but my duty i do not mince words i do not pretend to i say that comrade gregory is unfit to be thursday for all his amiable qualities he is unfit to be thursday because of his amiable qualities we do not want the supreme council of anarchy infected with a maudlin mercy here here this is no time for ceremonial politeness neither is it a time for ceremonial modesty i set myself against comrade gregory as i would set myself against all the governments of europe because the anarchist who has given himself to anarchy has forgotten modesty as much as he has forgotten pride cheers i am not a man at all i am a cause renewed cheers i set myself against comrade gregory as impersonally and as calmly as i should choose one pistol rather than another out of that rack upon the wall and i say that rather than have gregory and his milk-and-water methods on the supreme council i would offer myself for election his sentence was drowned in a deafening cataract of applause the faces that had grown fiercer and fiercer with approval as his tirade grew more and more uncompromising were now distorted with grins of anticipation or cloven with delighted cries at the moment when he announced himself as ready to stand for the post of thursday a roar of excitement and assent broke forth and became uncontrollable and at the same moment gregory sprang to his feet with foam upon his mouth and shouted against the shouting stop you blasted madman he cried at the top of a voice that tore his throat stop you but louder than gregory's shouting and louder than the roar of the room came the voice of syme still speaking in a peal of pitiless thunder i do not go to the council to rebut that slander that calls us murderers i go to earn it loud and prolonged cheering 
to the priest who says these men are the enemies of religion, to the judge who says these men are the enemies of law, to the fat parliamentarian who says these men are the enemies of order and public decency, to all these I will reply, you are false kings, but you are true prophets. I am come to destroy you and to fulfill your prophecies. The heavy clamor gradually died away, but before it had ceased, Witherspoon had jumped to his feet, his hair and beard all on end, and had said, I move as an amendment that Comrade Syme be appointed to the post. Stop all this, I tell you, cried Gregory with frantic face and hands. Stop it, it is all— The voice of the chairman clove his speech with a cold accent. Does anyone second this amendment? he said. A tall, tired man with melancholy eyes and an American chin-beard was observed on the back bench to be slowly rising to his feet. Gregory had been screaming for some time past. Now there was a change in his accent, more shocking than any scream. "'I end all this,' he said, in a voice as heavy as stone. "'This man cannot be elected. He is a—' "'Yes,' said Syme, quite motionless. What is he? Gregory's mouth worked twice without a sound. Then slowly the blood began to crawl back into his dead face. He is a man quite inexperienced in our work, he said, and sat down abruptly. Before he had done so, the long, lean man with the American beard was again upon his feet, and was repeating in a high American monotone, I beg to second the election of Comrade Syme. "'The amendment will, as usual, be put first, said Mr. Buttons, the chairman, with mechanical rapidity. "'The question is that Comrade Syme—' Gregory had again sprung to his feet, panting and passionate. "'Comrades!' he cried out. "'I am not a madman!' "'Oh, oh!' said Mr. Witherspoon. "'I am not a madman,' reiterated Gregory, with a frightful sincerity which for a moment staggered the room. But I give you a counsel which you can call mad, if you like. No, I will not call it a counsel, for I can give you no reason for it. I will call it a command. Call it a mad command, but act upon it. Strike, but hear me. Kill me, but obey me. Do not elect this man. Truth is so terrible, even in fetters, that for a moment Syme's slender and insane victory swayed like a reed. But you could not have guessed it from Syme's bleak blue eyes. He merely began, Comrade Gregory commands. Then the spell was snapped, and one anarchist called out to Gregory, Who are you? You are not Sunday. And another anarchist added in a heavier voice, And you are not Thursday. Comrades! cried Gregory in a voice like that of a martyr who in an ecstasy of pain has passed beyond pain. It is nothing to me whether you detest me as a tyrant or detest me as a slave. If you will not take my command, accept my degradation. I kneel to you. I throw myself at your feet. I implore you. Do not elect this man. Comrade Gregory, said the chairman after a painful pause, this is really not quite dignified. For the first time in the proceedings, there was for a few seconds a real silence. 
Then Gregory fell back in his seat, a pale wreck of a man, and the chairman repeated like a piece of clockwork suddenly started again. The question is that Comrade Syme be elected to the post of Thursday on the General Council. The roar rose like the sea, the hands rose like a forest, and three minutes afterwards Mr. Gabriel Syme, of the Secret Police Service, was elected to the post of Thursday on the General Council of the Anarchists of Europe. Everyone in the room seemed to feel the tug waiting on the river, the sword-stick and the revolver waiting on the table. The instant the election was ended and irrevocable, and Syme had received the paper proving his election, they all sprang to their feet, and the fiery groups moved and mixed in the room. Syme found himself, somehow or other, face to face with Gregory, who still regarded him with a stare of stunned hatred. They were silent for many minutes. "'You are a devil,' said Gregory at last. "'And you are a gentleman,' said Syme with gravity. "'It was you that entrapped me,' began Gregory, shaking from head to foot. "'Entrapped me into—' "'Talk sense,' said Syme shortly. "'Into what sort of devil's parliament have you entrapped me, if it comes to that? "'You made me swear before I made you. "'Perhaps we are both doing what we think right. "'But what we think right is so damned different "'that there can be nothing between us in the way of concession.' There is nothing possible between us but honour and death. And he pulled the great cloak about his shoulders and picked up the flask from the table. The boat is quite ready, said Mr. Buttons, bustling up. Be good enough to step this way. With a gesture that revealed the shopwalker, he led Syme down a short iron-bound passage, the still agonised Gregory following feverishly at their heels. At the end of the passage was a door, which Buttons opened sharply, showing a sudden blue and silver picture of the moonlit river that looked like a scene in a theatre. Close to the opening lay a dark dwarfish steam-launch, like a baby dragon with one red eye. Almost in the act of stepping on board, Gabriel Syme turned to the gaping Gregory. "'You have kept your word,' he said gently, with his face in shadow. "'You are a man of honour, and I thank you. You have kept it even down to a small particular.' There was one special thing you promised me at the beginning of the affair, and which you have certainly given me by the end of it. "'What do you mean?' cried the chaotic Gregory. "'What did I promise you?' "'A very entertaining evening,' said Syme, and he made a military salute with the sword-stick as the steamboat slid away. End of chapter 3「This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Man Who Was Thursday, A Nightmare by G. K. Chesterton Read by Zachary Brewster Geis, Greenbelt, Maryland, April 2007 Chapter 4 The Tale of a Detective Gabriel Syme was not merely a detective who pretended to be a poet. He was really a poet who had become a detective. Nor was his hatred of anarchy hypocritical. He was one of those who are driven early in life into too conservative an attitude by the bewildering folly of most revolutionists. He had not attained it by any tame tradition. His respectability was spontaneous and sudden, a rebellion against rebellion. 
He came of a family of cranks in which all the oldest people had all the newest notions. One of his uncles always walked about without a hat, and another had made an unsuccessful attempt to walk about with a hat and nothing else. His father cultivated art and self-realization. His mother went in for simplicity and hygiene. Hence the child, during his tenderer years, was wholly unacquainted with any drink between the extremes of absinthe and cocoa, of both of which he had a healthy dislike. The more his mother preached a more than Puritan abstinence, the more did his father expand into a more than pagan latitude, and by the time the former had come to enforcing vegetarianism, the latter had pretty well reached the point of defending cannibalism. Being surrounded with every conceivable kind of revolt from infancy, Gabriel had to revolt into something, so he revolted into the only thing left, sanity. But there was just enough in him of the blood of these fanatics to make even his protest for common sense a little too fierce to be sensible. His hatred of modern lawlessness had been crowned also by an accident. It happened that he was walking in a side street at the instant of a dynamite outrage. He had been blind and deaf for a moment, and then seen the smoke clearing, the broken windows and the bleeding faces. After that he went about as usual, quiet, courteous, rather gentle. But there was a spot on his mind that was not sane. He did not regard anarchists, as most of us do, as a handful of morbid men combining ignorance with intellectualism. He regarded them as a huge and pitiless peril, like a Chinese invasion. He poured perpetually into newspapers and their waste-paper baskets a torrent of tales, verses, and violent articles, warning men of this deluge of barbaric denial. But he seemed to be getting no nearer his enemy, and what was worse, no nearer a living. As he paced the Thames embankment, bitterly biting a cheap cigar and brooding on the advance of anarchy, there was no anarchist with a bomb in his pocket so savage or so solitary as he. Indeed, he always felt that government stood alone and desperate with its back to the wall. He was too quixotic to have cared for it otherwise. He walked on the embankment once under a dark red sunset. The red river reflected the red sky, and they both reflected his anger. The sky indeed was so swarthy, and the light on the river relatively so lurid, that the water almost seemed of fiercer flame than the sunset it mirrored. It looked like a stream of literal fire winding under the vast caverns of a subterranean country. Syme was shabby in those days. He wore an old-fashioned black chimney-pot hat. He was wrapped in a yet more old-fashioned cloak, black and ragged, and the combination gave him the look of the early villains in Dickens and Bulwer-Lytton. Also his yellow beard and hair were more unkempt and leonine than when they appeared long afterwards cut and pointed on the lawns of Saffron Park. A long, lean, black cigar, bought in Soho for tuppence, stood out from between his tightened teeth, and altogether he looked a very satisfactory specimen of the anarchists upon whom he had vowed a holy war. Perhaps this was why a policeman on the embankment spoke to him and said, Good evening. Syme, at a crisis of his morbid fears for humanity, seemed stung by the mere stolidity of the automatic official, a mere bulk of blue in the twilight. "'A good evening, is it?' he said sharply. "'You fellows would call the end of the world a good evening. Look at that bloody red sun and that bloody river. I tell you that if that were literally human blood, spilt and shining, 
you would still be standing here as solid as ever, looking out for some poor harmless tramp whom you could move on. You policemen are cruel to the poor, but I could forgive you even your cruelty if it were not for your calm. If we are calm, replied the policeman, it is the calm of organized resistance. Eh? said Syme, staring. The soldier must be calm in the thick of the battle, pursued the policeman. The composure of an army is the anger of a nation. Good God, the board schools, said Syme. Is this undenominational education? No, said the policeman sadly. I never had any of those advantages. The board schools came after my time. What education I had was very rough and old-fashioned, I'm afraid. "'Where did you have it?' asked Syme, wondering. "'Oh, at Harrow,' said the policeman. The class sympathies which, false as they are, are the truest things in so many men, broke out of Syme before he could control them. "'But, good Lord, man,' he said, "'you oughtn't to be a policeman.' The policeman sighed and shook his head. "'I know,' he said solemnly. "'I know I am not worthy.' "'But why did you join the police?' asked Syme, with rude curiosity. "'For much the same reason that you abused the police,' replied the other. "'I found that there was a special opening in the service for those whose fears for humanity were concerned rather with the aberrations of the scientific intellect than with the normal and excusable, though excessive, outbreaks of the human will. I trust I make myself clear?' "'If you mean that you make your opinion clear,' said Syme, I suppose you do, but as for making yourself clear, it is the last thing you do. How comes a man like you to be talking philosophy in a blue helmet on the Thames Embankment? You have evidently not heard of the latest development in our police system, replied the other. I am not surprised at it. We are keeping it rather dark from the educated class, because that class contains most of our enemies. But you seem to be exactly in the right frame of mind. I think you might almost join us. "'Join you in what?' asked Syme. "'I will tell you,' said the policeman slowly. "'This is the situation. "'The head of one of our departments, "'one of the most celebrated detectives in Europe, "'has long been of opinion "'that a purely intellectual conspiracy "'would soon threaten the very existence of civilization. "'He is certain that the scientific and artistic worlds "'are silently bound in a crusade "'against the family and the state.' He has, therefore, formed a special corps of policemen, policemen who are also philosophers. It is their business to watch the beginnings of this conspiracy, not merely in a criminal, but in a controversial sense. I am a Democrat myself, and I am fully aware of the value of the ordinary man in matters of ordinary valor or virtue, but it would obviously be undesirable to employ the common policeman in an investigation which is also a heresy hunt. Syme's eyes were bright with a sympathetic curiosity. "'What do you do, then?' he said. "'The work of the philosophical policeman,' replied the man in blue, "'is at once bolder and more subtle than that of the ordinary detective. "'The ordinary detective goes to pothouses to arrest thieves. "'We go to artistic tea-parties to detect pessimists.' The ordinary detective discovers from a ledger or a diary that a crime has been committed. We discover from a book of sonnets that a crime will be committed. 
we have to trace the origin of those dreadful thoughts that drive men on at last to intellectual fanaticism and intellectual crime. We were only just in time to prevent the assassination at Hartlepool, and that was entirely due to the fact that our own Mr. Wilkes, a smart young fellow, thoroughly understood a triolet. "'Do you mean,' asked Syme, "'that there is really as much connection between the crime and the modern intellect as all that?' "'You are not sufficiently democratic,' answered the policeman. "'But you were right when you said just now that our ordinary treatment of the poor criminal was a pretty brutal business. I tell you I am sometimes sick of my trade when I see how perpetually it means merely a war upon the ignorant and the desperate. But this new movement of ours is a very different affair. We deny the snobbish English assumption that the uneducated are the dangerous criminals. We remember the Roman emperors.' We remember the great poisoning princes of the Renaissance. We say that the dangerous criminal is the educated criminal. We say that the most dangerous criminal now is the entirely lawless modern philosopher. Compared to him, burglars and bigamists are essentially moral men. My heart goes out to them. They accept the essential idea of man. They merely seek it wrongly. Thieves respect property. They merely wish the property to become their property so that they may more perfectly respect it. But philosophers dislike property as property. They wish to destroy the very idea of personal possession. Bigamists respect marriage, or they would not go through the highly ceremonial and even ritualistic formality of bigamy. But philosophers despise marriage as marriage. Murderers respect human life. They merely wish to attain a greater fullness of human life in themselves by the sacrifice of what seems to them to be lesser lives. But philosophers hate life itself, their own, as much as other people's. Syme struck his hands together. "'How true that is!' he cried. "'I have felt it from my boyhood, but could never state the verbal antithesis. The common criminal is a bad man, but at least he is, as it were, a conditional good man.' He says that if only a certain obstacle be removed, say, a wealthy uncle, he is then prepared to accept the universe and praise God. He is a reformer, but not an anarchist. He wishes to cleanse the edifice, but not destroy it. But the evil philosopher is not trying to alter things, but to annihilate them. Yes, the modern world has retained all those parts of police work which are really oppressive and ignominious, the harrying of the poor, the spying upon the unfortunate. It has given up its more dignified work, the punishment of powerful traitors in the state and powerful heresiarchs in the church. The moderns say we must not punish heretics. My only doubt is whether we have a right to punish anybody else. But this is absurd, cried the policeman clasping his hands with an excitement uncommon in persons of his figure and costume. "'But this is intolerable! I don't know what you're doing, but you're wasting your life. You must, you shall, join our special army against anarchy. Their armies are on our frontiers. Their bolt is ready to fall. A moment more, and you may lose the glory of working with us, perhaps the glory of dying, with the last heroes of the world.' "'It is a chance not to be missed, certainly,' assented Syme. "'But I still do not quite understand.' I know as well as anybody that the modern world is full of lawless little men and mad little movements, but, beastly as they are, they generally have the one merit of disagreeing with each other. How can you talk of their leading one army or hurling one bolt? What is this anarchy? Do not confuse it, replied the constable, with those chance dynamite outbreaks from Russia or from Ireland, which are really the outbreaks of oppressed, if mistaken, men. 
This is a vast philosophic movement, consisting of an outer and an inner ring. You might even call the outer ring the laity and the inner ring the priesthood. I prefer to call the outer ring the innocent section, the inner ring the supremely guilty section. The outer ring, the main mass of their supporters, are merely anarchists. That is, men who believe that rules and formulas have destroyed human happiness. They believe that all the evil results of human crime are the results of the system that has called it crime. They do not believe that the crime creates the punishment. They believe that the punishment has created the crime. They believe that if a man seduced seven women, he would naturally walk away as blameless as the flowers of spring. They believe that if a man picked a pocket, he would naturally feel exquisitely good. These I call the innocent section. Oh, said Syme. Naturally, therefore, these people talk about a happy time coming, the paradise of the future, mankind freed from the bondage of vice and the bondage of virtue, and so on. And so also the men of the inner circle speak, the sacred priesthood. They also speak to applauding crowds of the happiness of the future and of mankind freed at last, but in their mouths. And the policeman lowered his voice. In their mouths these happy phrases have a horrible meaning. They are under no illusions. They are too intellectual to think that man upon this earth can ever be quite free of original sin and the struggle, and they mean death. When they say that mankind shall be free at last, they mean that mankind shall commit suicide. When they talk of a paradise without right or wrong, they mean the grave. They have but two objects, to destroy first humanity and then themselves. That is why they throw bombs instead of firing pistols. The innocent rank and file are disappointed because the bomb has not killed the king, but the high priesthood are happy because it has killed somebody. "'How can I join you?' asked Syme, with a sort of passion. "'I know for a fact that there is a vacancy at the moment,' said the policeman, "'as I have the honour to be somewhat in the confidence of the chief whom I have spoken. You should really come and see him, or rather I should not say see him. Nobody ever sees him. But you can talk to him if you like.' "'Telephone?' inquired Syme, with interest. "'No.' said the policeman placidly. He has a fancy for always sitting in a pitch-dark room. He says it makes his thoughts brighter. Do come along. Somewhat dazed and considerably excited, Syme allowed himself to be led to a side door in the long row of buildings of Scotland Yard. Almost before he knew what he was doing he had been passed through the hands of about four intermediate officials, and was suddenly shown into a room, the abrupt blackness of which startled him like a blaze of light. It was not the ordinary darkness, in which forms can be faintly traced. It was like going suddenly stone-blind. "'Are you the new recruit?' asked a heavy voice. And in some strange way, though there was not the shadow of a shape in the gloom, Syme knew two things. First, that it came from a man of massive stature, and second, that the man had his back to him. "'Are you the new recruit?' said the invisible chief, who seemed to have heard all about it. "'All right. You are engaged.' Syme, quite swept off his feet, made a feeble fight against this irrevocable phrase. "'I really have no experience,' he began. "'No one has any experience,' said the other, of the Battle of Armageddon. "'But I am really unfit.' 
"'You are willing. That is enough,' said the unknown. "'Well, really,' said Syme, "'I don't know any profession of which mere willingness is the final test.' "'I do,' said the other. "'Martus, I am condemning you to death. Good day.' Thus it was that when Gabriel Syme came out again into the crimson light of evening in his shabby black hat and shabby lawless cloak, he came out a member of the new detective corps for the frustration of the great conspiracy. Acting under the advice of his friend the policeman, who was professionally inclined to neatness, he trimmed his hair and beard, bought a good hat, clad himself in a exquisite summer suit of light blue-gray with a pale yellow flower in the buttonhole, and in short became that elegant and rather insupportable person whom Gregory had first encountered in the little garden of Saffron Park. Before he finally left the police premises, his friend provided him with a small blue card on which was written The Last Crusade, and a number, the sign of his official authority. He put this carefully in his upper waistcoat pocket, lit a cigarette, and went forth to track and fight the enemy in all the drawing-rooms of London. Where his adventure ultimately led him, we have already seen. At about half-past one on a February night, he found himself steaming in a small tug up the silent Thames, armed with sword-stick and revolver, the duly elected Thursday of the Central Council of Anarchists. When Syme stepped out onto the steam-tug, he had a singular sensation of stepping out into something entirely new, not merely into the landscape of a new land, but even into the landscape of a new planet. This was mainly due to the insane yet solid decision of that evening, though partly also to an entire change in the weather and the sky since he entered the little tavern some two hours before. Every trace of the passionate plumage of the cloudy sunset had been swept away, and a naked moon stood in a naked sky. The moon was so strong and full that, by a paradox often to be noticed, it seemed like a weaker sun. It gave not the sense of bright moonshine, but rather of a dead daylight. Over the whole landscape lay a luminous and unnatural discoloration, as of that disastrous twilight which Milton spoke of as shed by the sun in eclipse, so that Syme fell easily into his first thought that he was actually on some other and emptier planet which circled round some sadder star. But the more he felt this glittering desolation in the moonlit land, the more his own chivalric folly glowed in the night like a great fire. Even the common things he carried with him, the food and the brandy and the loaded pistol, took on exactly that concrete and material poetry which a child feels when he takes a gun upon a journey or a bun with him to bed. The sword-stick and the brandy-flask, though in themselves only the tools of morbid conspirators, became the expressions of his own more healthy romance. The sword-stick became almost the sword of chivalry, and the brandy the wine of the stirrup-cup. For even the most dehumanized modern fantasies depend on some older and simpler figure. The adventurers may be mad, but the adventurer must be sane. The dragon without St. George would not even be grotesque. So this inhuman landscape was only imaginative by the presence of a man really human. To Syme's exaggerative mind, the bright, bleak houses and terraces by the Thames looked as empty as the mountains of the moon. But even the moon is only poetical, because there is a man in the moon. The tug was worked by two men, 
and with much toil went comparatively slowly. The clear moon that had lit up Chiswick had gone down by the time that they passed Battersea, and when they came under the enormous bulk of Westminster, day had already begun to break. It broke like the splitting of great bars of lead showing bars of silver, and these had brightened like white fire when the tug, changing its onward course, turned inward to a large landing-stage rather beyond Charing Cross. The great stones of the embankment seemed equally dark and gigantic as Syme looked up at them. They were big and black against the huge white dawn. They made him feel that he was landing on the colossal steps of some Egyptian palace, and indeed the thing suited his mood, for he was, in his own mind, mounting to attack the solid thrones of horrible and heathen kings. He leapt out of the boat onto one slimy step, and stood, a dark and slender figure, amid the enormous masonry. The two men in the tug put her off again and turned upstream. They had never spoken a word. End of chapter 4「The Man Who Was Thursday」Chapter 5 This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Man Who Was Thursday – A Nightmare by G. K. Chesterton Read by Zachary Brewster Geis April 2007, Waterbury, Connecticut Chapter 5 the Feast of Fear. At first the large stone stair seemed to Syme as deserted as a pyramid, but before he reached the top he had realized that there was a man leaning over the parapet of the embankment and looking out across the river. As a figure he was quite conventional, clad in a silk hat and frock coat of the more formal type of fashion. He had a red flower in his buttonhole. As Syme drew nearer to him step by step, he did not even move a hair, and Syme could come close enough to notice, even in the dim, pale morning light, that his face was long, pale, and intellectual, and ended in a small triangular tuft of dark beard at the very point of the chin, all else being clean-shaven. This scrap of hair almost seemed a mere oversight. The rest of the face was of the type that is best shaven, clear-cut, ascetic, and in its way noble. Syme drew closer and closer, noting all this, and still the figure did not stir. At first an instinct had told Syme that this was the man whom he was meant to meet. Then, seeing that the man made no sign, he had concluded that he was not and now again he had come back to a certainty that the man had something to do with his mad adventure, for the man remained more still than would have been natural if a stranger had come so close. He was as motionless as a waxwork, and got on the nerves somewhat in the same way. Syme looked again and again at the pale, dignified and delicate face, and the face still looked blankly across the river. Then he took out of his pocket the note from Buttons proving his election, and put it before that sad and beautiful face. Then the man smiled, and his smile was a shock, for it was all on one side, going up in the right cheek and down in the left. There was nothing, rationally speaking, to scare anyone about this. Many people have this nervous trick of a crooked smile, and in many it is even attractive. 
but in all Syme's circumstances, with the dark dawn and the deadly errand, and the loneliness on the great dripping stones, there was something unnerving in it. There was the silent river and the silent man, a man of even classic face, and there was the last nightmare touch that his smile suddenly went wrong. The spasm of smile was instantaneous, and the man's face dropped at once into its harmonious melancholy. He spoke without further explanation or inquiry, like a man speaking to an old colleague. "'If we walk up towards Leicester Square,' he said, "'we shall just be in time for breakfast. Sunday always insists on an early breakfast. Have you had any sleep?' "'No,' said Syme. "'Nor have I.' answered the man in an ordinary tone. I shall try to get to bed after breakfast. He spoke with casual civility, but in an utterly dead voice that contradicted the fanaticism of his face. It seemed almost as if all friendly words were to him lifeless conveniences, and that his only life was hate. After a pause the man spoke again. Of course the secretary of the branch told you everything that can be told— but the one thing that can never be told is the last notion of the President, for his notions grow like a tropical forest. So in case you don't know, I'd better tell you that he is carrying out his notion of concealing ourselves by not concealing ourselves to the most extraordinary lengths just now. Originally, of course, we met in a cell underground, just as your branch does. Then Sunday made us take a private room at an ordinary restaurant. He said that if you didn't seem to be hiding, nobody hunted you out. Well, he is the only man on earth, I know, but sometimes I really think that his huge brain is going a little mad in its old age. For now we flaunt ourselves before the public. We have our breakfast on a balcony, on a balcony, if you please, overlooking Leicester Square. And what do the people say? asked Syme. It's quite simple what they say, answered his guide. They say we are a lot of jolly gentlemen who pretend they are anarchists. It seems to me a very clever idea, said Syme. Clever! God blast your impudence, clever! cried out the other in a sudden, shrill voice, which was as startling and discordant as his crooked smile. When you've seen Sunday for a split second, you'll leave off calling him clever. With this they emerged out of a narrow street, and saw the early sunlight filling Leicester Square. It will never be known, I suppose, why this square itself should look so alien and in some ways so continental. It will never be known whether it was the foreign look that attracted the foreigners, or the foreigners who gave it the foreign look. But on this particular morning the effect seemed singularly bright and clear. Between the open square and the sunlit leaves and the statue and the Saracenic outlines of the Alhambra, it looked at the replica of some French or even Spanish public place, and this effect increased in Syme the sensation which in many shapes he had had through the whole adventure, the eerie sensation of having strayed into a new world. As a fact, he had bought bad cigars around Leicester Square ever since he was a boy, but as he turned that corner and saw the trees and the Moorish cupolas, he could have sworn that he was turning into an unknown place de something or other in some foreign town. 
At one corner of the square there projected a kind of angle of a prosperous but quiet hotel, the bulk of which belonged to a street behind. In the wall there was one large French window, probably the window of a large coffee-room, and outside this window, almost literally overhanging the square, was a formidably buttressed balcony, big enough to contain a dining-table. In fact, it did contain a dining-table, or more strictly a breakfast-table. And round the breakfast-table, glowing in the sunlight and evident to the street, were a group of noisy and talkative men, all dressed in the insolence of fashion, with white waistcoats and expensive buttonholes. Some of their jokes could almost be heard across the square. Then the grave secretary gave his unnatural smile, and Syme knew that this boisterous breakfast party was the secret conclave of the European dynamiters. Then, as Syme continued to stare at them, he saw something that he had not seen before. He had not seen it literally because it was too large to see. At the nearest end of the balcony, blocking up a great part of the perspective, was the back of a great mountain of a man. When Syme had seen him, his first thought was that the weight of him must break down the balcony of stone. His vastness did not lie only in the fact that he was abnormally tall and quite incredibly fat. This man was planned enormously in his original proportions, like a statue carved deliberately as colossal. His head, crowned with white hair, as seen from behind looked bigger than a head ought to be. The ears that stood out from it looked larger than human ears. He was enlarged terribly to scale, and this sense of size was so staggering that when Syme saw him, all the other figures seemed quite suddenly to dwindle and become dwarfish. They were still sitting there as before with their flowers and frock coats, but now it looked as if the big man was entertaining five children to tea. As Syme and the guide approached the side door of the hotel, a waiter came out smiling with every tooth in his head. "'The gentlemen are up there, sir,' he said. "'They do talk, and they do laugh at what they talk. They do say they will throw bombs at the king.' And the waiter hurried away with a napkin over his arm, much pleased with the singular frivolity of the gentlemen upstairs. The two men mounted the stairs in silence. Syme had never thought of asking whether the monstrous man who almost filled and broke the balcony was the great president of whom the others stood in awe. He knew it was so, with an unaccountable but instantaneous certainty. Syme indeed was one of those men who are open to all the more nameless psychological influences, in a degree a little dangerous to mental health. Utterly devoid of fear and physical dangers, he was a great deal too sensitive to the smell of spiritual evil. Twice already that night little unmeaning things had peeped out at him almost pruriently, and given him a sense of drawing nearer and nearer to the headquarters of hell, and this sense became overpowering as he drew nearer to the great president. The form it took was a childish and yet hateful fancy. As he walked across the inner room towards the balcony, the large face of Sunday grew larger and larger and Syme was gripped with a fear that when he was quite close the face would be too big to be possible and that he would scream aloud. He remembered that as a child he would not look at the mask of Memnon in the British Museum because it was a face, and so large. 
By an effort braver than that of leaping over a cliff, he went to an empty seat at the breakfast-table and sat down. The men greeted him with good-humoured raillery, as if they had always known him. He sobered himself a little by looking at their conventional coats and solid, shining coffee-pot. Then he looked again at Sunday. His face was very large, but it was still possible to humanity. In the presence of the President, the whole company looked sufficiently commonplace. Nothing about them caught the eye at first, except that by the President's caprice they had been dressed up with a festive respectability, which gave the meal the look of a wedding breakfast. One man indeed stood out at even a superficial glance. He at least was the common or garden dynamiter. He wore, indeed, the high white collar and satin tie that were the uniform of the occasion. But out of this collar there sprang a head, quite unmanageable and quite unmistakable, a bewildering bush of brown hair and beard that almost obscured the eyes like those of a sky terrier. But the eyes did look out of the tangle, and they were the sad eyes of some Russian serf. The effect of this figure was not terrible, like that of the President but it had every diablerie that can come from the utterly grotesque. If out of that stiff tie and collar there had come abruptly the head of a cat or a dog, it could not have been a more idiotic contrast. The man's name, it seemed, was Gogol. He was a Pole, and in this circle of days he was called Tuesday. His soul and speech were incurably tragic. He could not force himself to play the prosperous and frivolous part demanded of him by President Sunday. And indeed, when Syme came in, the President, with that daring disregard of public suspicion which was his policy, was actually chaffing Gogol upon his inability to assume conventional graces. "'Our friend Tuesday,' said the President, in a deep voice, at once of quietude and volume, our friend Tuesday doesn't seem to grasp the idea. He dresses up like a gentleman, but he seems to be too great a soul to behave like one. He insists on the ways of the stage conspirator. Now if a gentleman goes about London in a top hat and a frock coat, no one need know that he is an anarchist. But if a gentleman puts on a top hat and a frock coat, and then goes about on his hands and knees, well— he may attract attention. That's what Brother Gogol does. He goes about on his hands and knees with such inexhaustible diplomacy that by this time he finds it quite difficult to walk upright. "'I am not good at concealment,' said Gogol sulkily, with a thick foreign accent. "'I am not ashamed of the cause.' "'Yes, you are, my boy, and so is the cause of you.' said the President good-naturedly. "'You hide as much as anybody. But you can't do it, you see. You're such an ass. You try to combine two inconsistent methods. When a householder finds a man under his bed, he will probably pause to note the circumstance. But if he finds a man under his bed in a top hat, you will agree with me, my dear Tuesday, that he is not likely even to forget it. Now when you are found under Admiral Biffin's bed—' "'I am not good at deception,' said Tuesday gloomily, flushing. "'Right, my boy, right,' said the President, with a ponderous heartiness. "'You aren't good at anything.' 
While this stream of conversation continued, Syme was looking more steadily at the men around him. As he did so, he gradually felt all his sense of something spiritually queer return. He had thought at first that they were all of common stature and costume, with the evident exception of the hairy Gogol. But as he looked at the others, he began to see in each of them exactly what he had seen in the man by the river, a demoniac detail somewhere. That lopsided laugh, which would suddenly disfigure the fine face of his original guide, was typical of all these types. Each man had something about him, perceived perhaps at the tenth or twentieth glance, which was not normal, and which seemed hardly human. The only metaphor he could think of was this, that they all looked as men of fashion and presence would look, with the additional twist given in a false and curved mirror. Only the individual examples will express this half-concealed eccentricity. Syme's original Cicerone bore the title of Monday. He was the secretary of the council, and his twisted smile was regarded with more terror than anything except the president's horrible, happy laughter. But now that Syme had more space and light to observe him, there were other touches. His fine face was so emaciated that Syme thought it must be wasted with some disease. Yet somehow the very distress of his dark eyes denied this. It was no physical ill that troubled him. His eyes were alive with intellectual torture, as if pure thought was pain. He was typical of each of the tribe. Each man was subtly and differently wrong. Next to him sat Tuesday, the tousle-headed Gogol, a man more obviously mad. Next was Wednesday, a certain Marquis de Saint-Eustache, a sufficiently characteristic figure. The first few glances found nothing unusual about him, except that he was the only man at table who wore the fashionable clothes as if they were really his own. He had a black French beard cut square, and a black English frock-coat cut even squarer, but Syme, sensitive to such things, felt somehow that the man carried a rich atmosphere with him, a rich atmosphere that suffocated. It reminded one irrationally of drowsy odors and of dying lamps in the darker poems of Byron and Poe. With this went a scent of his being clad, not in lighter colors, but in softer materials. His black seemed richer and warmer than the black shades about him, as if it were compounded of profound color. His black coat looked as if it were only black by being too dense a purple. His black beard looked as if it were only black by being too deep a blue. And in the gloom and thickness of the beard his dark red mouth showed sensual and scornful. Whatever he was, he was not a Frenchman. He might be a Jew, he might be something deeper yet in the dark heart of the East. In the bright-colored Persian tiles and pictures showing tyrants hunting, you may see just those almond eyes, those blue-black beards, those cruel crimson lips. Then came Syme, and next a very old man, Professor de Worms, who still kept the chair of Friday, though every day it was expected that his death would leave it empty. Save for his intellect, he was in the last dissolution of senile decay. His face was as gray as his long gray beard, his forehead was lifted and fixed finally in a furrow of mild despair. In no other case, not even that of Gogol, did the bridegroom brilliancy of the morning dress express a more painful contrast, for the red flower in his buttonhole showed up against a face that was literally discolored like lead, 
the whole hideous effect was as if some drunken dandies had put their clothes upon a corpse. When he rose or sat down, which was with long labor and peril, something worse was expressed than mere weakness, something indefinably connected with the horror of the whole scene. It did not express decrepitude merely, but corruption. Another hateful fancy crossed Syme's quivering mind. He could not help thinking that whenever the man moved, a leg or arm might fall off. Right at the end sat the man called Saturday, the simplest and the most baffling of all. He was a short, square man with a dark, square face, clean-shaven, a medical practitioner going by the name of Bull. He had that combination of savoir-faire with a sort of well-groomed coarseness which is not uncommon in young doctors. He carried his fine clothes with confidence rather than ease, and he mostly wore a set smile. There was nothing whatever odd about him, except that he wore a pair of dark, almost opaque spectacles. It may have been merely a crescendo of nervous fancy that had gone before, but those black discs were dreadful to Syme. They reminded him of half-remembered ugly tales, of some story about pennies being put on the eyes of the dead. Syme's eye always caught the black glasses and the blind grin. Had the dying professor worn them, or even the pale secretary, they would have been appropriate. But on the younger and grosser man they seemed only an enigma. They took away the key of the face. You could not tell what his smile or his gravity meant. Partly from this, and partly because he had a vulgar virility, wanting in most of the others, it seemed to Syme that he might be the wickedest of all those wicked men. Syme even had the thought that his eyes might be covered up, because they were too frightful to see. End of chapter 5「Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate megastores led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.